0: Um, I guess a number of us are going to remember, aren't we, perhaps only too clearly, um, one of the uh, deadliest disasters in recorded human history um, happened on Boxing Day 2004, um, of course, when a, um, a 9.2 magnitude earthquake caused a massive tsunami that affected uh, 14 countries in, in Asia and uh, Africa, sadly killed more than... 230,000 people it was devastating wasn't it it was devastating what I didn't recall about the event and the aftermath of it was that the the impact of it could have been less it it could have claimed fewer lives if the warnings had been heeded Um, seven years before the tsunami uh, a, a top government official Um, had had been warning that one of these was expected. Um, But his warnings had been ignored. In fact, uh, in Thailand, where he was, he was even banned from entering certain parts of Thailand because he was considered a a threat to tourism. Also, following the the earthquake that kicked this off, the the Pacific Ocean uh, tsunami warning system made calls to the government officials in several Asian countries, warning of the tsunami risk, but but actually many of the countries chose to ignore the warnings or decided that they weren't going to take any action. Um, Indeed, many countries still ignored the final warning when the sea started to recede several hundred meters, you know, a kind of clear sign that there was an incoming tsunami. Uh, Some people even taking the opportunity to catch some stranded fish that had been left behind. um, Instead, I guess, of running inland (laughs) for their lives. And tragically, they all discovered that uh, complacency can be a killer. Uh, To to dismiss the warnings of impending danger is is a foolish thing to do, isn't it? And as we come back after Easter to these uh, studies in the book of Revelation, we, we've been seeing actually warning after warning in, in the book, haven't we? John has taught us that, uh, that judgment is coming um, and that we need to be ready. In fact, we saw that very clearly the last time, if you remember, didn't we? chapters 14 to, to 17, as John explained the judgment to come in, in chapter 14, uh, and that we are judged according to how we've treated God in, in this life. Um, he, he, he's, um, he's also been warning the, the Christian um, that that life for the Christian before Christ returns won't be an easy ride uh, either. But we can expect to suffer, indeed, at, at the hands of various enemies of God, behind which stands Satan himself. Um, so this, this book of Revelation has been very realistic, hasn't it, about the times in which we live. But we've also seen some amazing encouragements as well, haven't we? Uh, in the book, we've seen that God is sovereign. Uh, he rules. He sits on the throne of the universe and and nothing happens either in our lives or in the whole cosmos that is outside of his authority. And we've seen too that Jesus has the victory. His victory over Satan was won at the cross, such that any future battle at the end of time is is simply a, a mopping up operation. And we've also seen that although we can expect persecution as God's people in the here and now, yet spiritually speaking, we are absolutely secure. There is nothing that can take away our status as God's people. But in these chapters here this morning, 18 to 20, we get one last glimpse of the judgment to come, kind of one final insight into what's going to happen because John here wants us to know for sure that all God's enemies will be fully and finally defeated. And and by the time we get to the end of chapter 20 here, there will be no more enemies of God left. Indeed, evil itself will have been destroyed and, and consigned to eternal judgment. So these chapters, if you like, they're a kind of, they're a final warning and so we need to take what they say seriously, don't we? Because to ignore the warning, well, that's to face very serious consequences. And what I'd like us to notice um, in these three chapters is, is that they lay in front of us, if you like, three, three contrasts, uh, as, as Ollie mentioned earlier, contrast between two cities, two feasts, and two destinies. And, and so as we go briefly through the three chapters, I'd like us to ask ourselves three questions. You know, questions that surely are the most crucial questions that anyone will ever have to face uh, in their lives. Three chapters, three contrasts, three questions. And here's question number one, which is Which city are you a citizen of? Which city are you a citizen of? And that question is kind of posed for us in chapter 18 and, and through to chapter 19, verse 5, which we didn't read, but I think you'll see it easily enough. Now, in in a few places in in the book of Revelation, we get two cities talked about, uh, don't we? One city is Babylon, gets talked about a lot. Uh, The other city is Zion, also gets talked about a lot. Babylon is also described as a prostitute. Um, Zion, on the other hand, is is also described as a beautiful bride. So kind of two two cities, two women, if you like. Um, But both of those images... Babylon the prostitute, Zion the bride, represent two different communities of people, if you like. People who oppose God, follow Satan, uh, either either consciously or or unconsciously, subconsciously, on on the one hand, and the people of God on the other hand. And in chapter 17, if if you remember, which we looked at the last time, and here in chapter 18 as well, John prophesies the destruction of this prostitute or this city called Babylon. And it's a prophecy about the end of sinful humanity. Um, In in chapter 17, the the prostitute was killed. Now here in chapter 18, the the camera angle shifts. Again, if you remember, we've seen that Revelation is not so much a a chronological account or a timetable of events, but it's kind of a series of of overlapping pictures that describe the same events, but from uh, different camera angles, if you like. And that's what's happening here as well. It's describing the same event as chapter 17, but from a different angle, if you like. In in chapter 17, it was Babylon the prostitute that was destroyed. Here in chapter 18, it's Babylon the city that's destroyed. So so kind of two different pieces of imagery, but but the same event. And and what event is it describing? Well, Babylon, of course, it it was a real city, wasn't it? But it it was destroyed back in uh, 6th century BC. So by John's time, Babylon is just a little kind of village in, in what is now Iraq. Um, But but in in biblical imagery, Babylon had come to represent, to symbolize human society in opposition to God. In other words, the chapter pictures humanity, sinful humanity, as a city that is kind of gorging herself on the, the riches of the world, if you like. So humanity is like a city which which trades with merchants from around the world, gets fat on on others' misery, abuses those who oppose her, hence the, the sort of continual references to her being responsible for the deaths of Christians. In other words, it's human civilization in all of its kind of godless pomp and arrogance and and glory kind of shaking its fist at at God saying, you know, we, we defy you. We revel in our material possessions, our fine arts, our wealth, our, our immorality. Uh, you know, in other words, we're the gods. We're the gods, not you. That's the kind of the attitude here. And as such, this city or, or this prostitute it is symbolic of everything that is opposed to God. You know, all those who are, who are not Christian, if you like, in In this age. So Babylon in John's day would have been kind of epitomized by by Rome, of course. But today it could be epitomized by London, or by New York, or by Beijing, or by Ride, or by simply you and me, if if we are proudly refusing to bow the knee to Jesus as as they were. And and notice three facts about the judgment that is going to fall on Babylon, on, on sinful human civilization. Firstly, notice that judgment is announced okay, in verses 1 to 8. Do you see in verse 2, an angel announces her fate. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And although that's spoken of in the past tense, yet this is a prophecy of a future judgment on humanity. But it's so certain. That it's spoken of in the past tense. You know it's as good as happened already. And if you look in the second half of verse 7. We get the reason. The city is kind of pictured as a, a queen. And, and, and John comments in her heart. She says I sit as a queen. I'm no widow. Mourning uh, I shall never see. That That there is the human heart isn't it? Judgment's not coming. I'm, I'm the king. I'm the queen. You know God can't do anything to me. Well. You know, friends, how foolish that is. Because God will act against everyone who opposes him. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then notice, secondly, that judgment is lamented. This is in verses 9 to 24. Um, and and these, are, these verses, you can kind of see as you scan through them, they're a, they're a series of woes. And, and they're spoken by those who have got fat Babylon again it's kind of symbolic uh, of course but it's picturing people lamenting the fall of the great city but notice they're not sad for the city but but only that they lose out because their their source of income has, has gone so for example at verse 11 the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore right and of course that that's what happens when civilization collapses, isn't it? People lost out when the, the Roman Empire collapsed or, or when the Iron Curtain fell. And actually one day the whole of humanity in its opposition to God will be brought to account and, and, and there will be a lot of weeping and mourning. A lot of people will lose out. But then notice in, in chapter 19 and verses 1 to 5 how judgment is praised. Because what is the response of the people of God To his judgment on Babylon, verse 1, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. See, friends, when, when you see things from God's perspective, you praise God for his just judgment. And, and and here, you know, at last, the, the, the cry of God's people for justice for those who have been persecuted, well, it's it's heard, isn't it? God will bring justice on those who have persecuted the people of God. We can be sure of it. So what should the people of God do in all of this? Well, the answer to that question, look, if you go back to chapter 18, have a look at verse 4. What should the people of God do in all this? Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. In other words, the people of God are told to come out. What what does that mean? Well, well, clearly it it can't mean that we literally remove ourselves from Babylon, can it? (laughs) Because if Babylon represents the whole of human society, you know, living in opposition to God, we can't leave that, can we? We live in it. That's the world we inhabit, the world all around us. But his point is that we live in Babylon as citizens of a different city. The city of Zion. As God's people, our true citizenship is in heaven, isn't it? We're a pilgrim people here in Babylon. We don't belong here. Babylon's not our home. Zion is our home. We're citizens of heaven. And so we're to live. With the values, with the ethics, with the laws, with the standards of, of Zion—not those of Babylon—because how we live now is to be in readiness for that new home that is coming. Um, back before I was in uh, sort of full-time ministry, my work used to take me to lots of different countries uh, around the world, lots of them developing countries, actually, where the where the culture, the the language, and so on is very different from from here in the UK. So I'd, you know, I'd need to get horrible jabs with big needles before I went. And, and I'd have to take anti-malarial sometimes. I'd, I'd, I'd grab a travel guide to the country to try and learn a bit about the culture. Uh, I'd make sure I packed clothes that would be suitable for the climate. You know, I'd, I'd try and learn a few basic phrases of the language uh, and so on, that kind of thing. That was all to get ready for the, the, kind of the culture shock I knew was coming when I stepped off the plane where things would be very different. And the same is true for us as Christians, friends, isn't it? We are no longer as Christians. We are no longer citizens of this world. But we're heading for heaven. We're heading for Zion. And so our lives here need to be lived in readiness for that time. Which means that we ought to be clothing ourselves with with God's clothes of righteousness, didn't we? Clothing Clothing ourselves with his qualities now. It means we should be, as it were, learning the language of heaven, so to speak, you know, and, and displaying that in, in our everyday lives, in, in lives of, of selflessness and, and love and concern for one another and, and so on. You know, I think a good question to ask ourselves, perhaps, is, is how different are we to the, to the, the world around us? Not in a kind of you know, sinful, looking down your nose at people kind of way. Not that. But, but as God's people, our, our attitudes should be totally different, shouldn't they? You know, our attitudes to use our, to, to, towards our, our use of money or our possessions or our time or towards family, friends, towards careers, towards hobbies, whatever. Are they? Are they? Are these things marked by our new citizenship in, in Zion? Or are they still very much marked by our old citizenship in Babylon? Because as Christians, our citizenship has changed, hasn't it? By God's grace, we have a, a new citizenship now. But, friends, so often we just get so comfortable in this world, don't we? In Babylon, we forget where we're heading. So, friends, when we examine our, our lives, when we examine our habits, when we examine our priorities, or our bank balances, or our language, or our thought lives, or, or, or whatever it might be, do they reflect our citizenship? Are we citizens of Zion, which will endure forever, or are we citizens of Babylon, which is heading for destruction? And if it's Zion that we're citizens of, well, is it Zion that uh, if it's Zion that we're heading for, then how does the, how does our living now? need to further reflect the place to which we belong and the place that we're destined for. Well, I think the second question is just as challenging as the first one, really. And and it's, it's, which feast will you attend? Which feast will you attend? And, And this is in the rest of chapter 19, really, where we find Jesus coming back to conquer, and his return brings about two feasts. Okay, And the first one is the wedding feast of the Lamb in verses 6 to 10. Do you see? Uh, Verse 6, we see the people of God rejoicing in in God's victory. And we're told that now the wedding of the Lamb has come, verse 7. and, And his bride has made herself ready. So who is the bride? Well, we find that out in verse 8, don't we? Where the bride is to wear fine linen, which stands for the righteous deeds of the saints. So the bride is the saints. The bride is the people of God. We're the bride. And, and this wedding really is, is what the, the whole of human history has been waiting for. The wedding of the Lamb to his people, his bride, his church. See, um, there's a sense in which, for now, we are, as it were, engaged to Christ. Okay, we're, we're betrothed, if you like, to him. And if, if, if you've been engaged, it can be quite a frustrating time in some respects, can't it? Yes, you, you know what's coming, but it's, it's not yours yet. There is something to enjoy now. You know, engagement's great. Certain promises have been made. You're, you're betrothed to be, to be married. You're promising to, to do so. You're, you're enjoying the relationship you have. But the best is yet to come, isn't it? And so it is with Christ and his people. We are enjoying many benefits now of being, as it were, betrothed to Christ. And yet the best is yet to come. As one day we'll be married to Christ, so to speak. We'll be with him personally forever. And that is something that happens after Judgment Day. When the people of God are given new resurrection bodies, a new earth to live in and, and and look at verse 9 blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb john is kind of mixing his metaphors there a bit isn't he not not only are god's people the bride but we're also guests at the wedding if you like who need to respond to the invitation did, did you pick that up in other words the only people at the wedding will be god's people won't be anybody else there and, and on a number of occasions you might know jesus referred to himself didn't he as the bridegroom And said, we need to be ready for his coming so that we can come to the wedding. Which is another um, incentive for us as God's people, isn't it? Not um, Not to sleep around, spiritually speaking. In other words, don't be the prostitute of chapter 17. But rather save yourself spiritually for Christ, your husband to be. Keep yourself pure for him, verse 8. I mean, can you imagine a bride you know, going out just weeks before her wedding and having a series of affairs with other men? <laughs> How crass would that be? But in the same way, we as, as the people of God are betrothed to Christ. And, and so to, to, to have uh, you know flings or to flirt, spiritually speaking, that's just as crass, isn't it? Friends, we mustn't, as God's people, get so wrapped up in this world that we'd lose our first love and end up flirting or flinging with the many idols of this world. But rather, we need to live a godly life. We need to stay passionate about our future husband, Christ. Because the wedding is coming. The bridegroom's coming. So so stay alert and, and stay pure. Because the wedding will happen soon. But look, did you notice? There's another feast mentioned in these verses, isn't there? And and that's the uh, that's the funeral feast of the birds. So yes, the bridegroom's coming, but to those who are not the bride, right? To those who have rejected, as it were, the invitation to come to the wedding, actually there's something much more grim awaiting them, isn't there? If you look at verses eleven to sixteen, you'll see that they describe the the coming of jesus right he he comes on a white horse um he comes uh, that's that's symbolizing victory And, and do you notice his titles all of which point to who he is and what he's about to do so he's called faithful and true in verse 11 he's called the word of god in verse 13 in other words jesus is the final revelation and as such, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, in verse 16. In other words, no one else but him rules. His robe is dipped in blood, verse 13, signifying not so much the cross here, but rather judgment, right? As his sword strikes down the nations, verse 15, as he treads the wine press of God's judgment. You might remember that wine press being described back in chapter 14, a, a gruesome. Metaphor of God's judgment, wasn't it? And now we're told here that it's Jesus who will tread out that winepress, who will tread out the the blood of the people. Do you see, this is his judgment, and he's come to judge by his word. It's quite an astonishing picture of Jesus, isn't it? And and maybe not one we often think that we see in, in the Gospels. Because this is the victorious Jesus riding at the head of an army. To bring victory and judgment. to, To bring all of God's purposes to fulfillment. And it might challenge and correct our understanding of Jesus' ministry a bit. Because this Jesus has utter sovereignty over the nations. And his judgment is just and true. And friends, one day he will return in absolute triumph over all of his enemies. So I guess it's no surprise when we read what happens in verses 17 to 21, is it? Have a look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and small. And great. That's a pretty gruesome picture, isn't it? The birds of the air here are called to gorge themselves on the corpses of God's enemies. That's the picture. But then in in verse 19, it looks as though the victory of Jesus is threatened, doesn't it? The kings of the earth and their armies, headed by the beast, they, they gather together to make war against the Lord Jesus and his people. Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? It's the battle that's described in chapter 16 and and chapter 17 is going to be described again in chapter 20. And when you look at the language, when you, 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 in each case, when you, when you place them side by side, you can see it's the same battle being described. It's, it's what takes place at the symbolic Armageddon in, in chapter 16. That, that, that point at the end of time when, when the enemies of God led by Satan will come against God and his people kind of one last time if you like, however that will happen. I suspect the battle imagery is symbolic there. Um, in other words, it will be kind of one last go at the church and a very brief period when God's people seem to be totally defeated, but it'll be over before it started. That's what verse 19 here is describing as well, isn't it? It's, it's kind of an action replay. Only this time, look, the camera is rolling on the beast, Verse 20, do you see that? There he is, he's kind of all togged up in his armor. But no sooner has he drawn his sword than he's defeated. And he's captured and he's thrown into the lake of fire along with the false prophet and all the rest of them were killed as well. Verse 21. Did you see the the picture? It's total defeat for Satan and it's total victory for the Lord Jesus. So here's our second question, friends. Which feast would you like to go to? The wedding feast of the lamb, where you are the bride and the guest of honor. Or the funeral feast of the birds, where to be blunt, you are on the menu. You see, team up with Christ and you're on the winning side. Team up with Satan, you'll surely die. And friend, if you're not yet a Christian, please think long and hard about what God is saying there. Because he's he's not, John's not giving us a kind of just a scary story here. He's giving us the warning of Jesus Himself. And, and for those of us who, who are Christians already this morning, if we really believe, which we should, that this is the future that awaits us, it's got to affect radically the way that we live now, hasn't it? Because it's not just that we are citizens of a different city. But it's also that we are heading for a different feast. We're heading for a wedding feast where we are the bride and Christ is the groom. So friends, we need to stay pure and we need to stay ready for his coming. Which feast will you attend? And that brings us to chapter 20, our third question, which is which destiny are you heading for? And here's, uh, here's, here's verses 1 to 6 of, of chapter 20, which are probably, aren't they, the most, I think they're probably the most hotly disputed verses in the book. They, they describe what's been called the millennium or the, the thousand years, the, the thousand year uh, reign of Christ. It's, it's an area in which well-read, you know, biblically well-read Christians disagree. But it's a secondary issue, let's just say that. The gospel is not at stake Um, in that so I'm going to tell you how I read it if you disagree that's fine (laughs) let's just do so with humility and grace because it's not a major salvation issue frankly there are more important things to worry about Um, and if you get confused in all the details here because there's quite a few of them don't worry the important thing is to know we win okay in Jesus we have the victory. So what is it then that these, these verses are, are saying? What is this millennium, this thousand years that, that these verses keep uh, talking about? When, when will it happen? Uh, there are basically three views. We, we haven't got a lot of time, but I'll try and outline the first two quite, quite briefly and then show you the view I, I think makes the, the best sense of the, the passage. And not just the passage, but also the whole of the book and, and what the rest of the Bible teaches about the issue as well. What one view is called um, post millennialism okay so so that that view uh holds that jesus return will happen after there has been a millennium or a thousand years of of kind of great advance of the gospel so it's a kind of a, a, a thousand-year golden age of gospel advance, if you like, in, in which the church will grow and, and exercise a, a positive influence in society. And then after that thousand-year golden age, Christ will return. He'll bring about final judgment and the new creation. It's a very positive view uh, of the end. Personally, I find it quite hard to, to believe um, because I don't think the New Testament is that optimistic about the state of affairs just before the Lord returns. But rather, I, I think it sees it getting a bit worse and worse before he returns rather than, than better and better. That's post-millennialism. Uh, another view is called pre-millennialism. So this holds that Christ will return before or pre the millennium, the, the thousand years, and then reign on earth with his people for a, usually a, a literal thousand-year period during which unbelievers will, will also continue to live on the earth with many, although not all, uh, turning to Christ. So, so that, that view holds that the, the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on, on earth will end with this great battle of Armageddon, uh, after which final judgment and eternity will will um, kick in. Uh, Many pre-millennialists also take the view that an intense period of tribulation will precede Christ's return but that Christ will return in secret uh, as it were before then in order to take his people out of the world, a so-called rapture. Um, I I think there are a couple of Fairly substantial problems with that view. One problem is that it holds that Jesus reigns on earth for a literal thousand-year period. I'm afraid I don't see any evidence in the New Testament that that supports that fact. I I know some people suggest one or two passages that do, but personally I don't find that very compelling. Um, If such an important event as a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth were true, I think we'd see a lot clearer evidence for it in the New Testament. Um, the other big problem with it, as I see it, uh, is that the the kind of the rapture variant of this view requires effectively that Jesus returns twice, so so once in secret to rapture his people, and then again to reign on the earth and carry out final judgment. Whereas, as far as I can see, the New Testament speaks only of one return of Christ at the end of time, followed by an eternal reign in the new heavens and the new earth which means that the view that makes the most sense to, to me is to see the millennium, the thousand years in these verses, as a symbolic rather than a literal period of time. It's a view known as amillennialism. I don't really like the title very much because A there means not or, or no. So the title I think is a bit misleading because it, it doesn't hold that there's no millennium. <laughs> but rather that the thousand years is symbolic, symbolic actually of the whole period of time between Christ's first and second comings. In other words, John lived and we live in the the metaphorical thousand years of Revelation 20. And and this makes sense to me because as we've seen so much of Revelation and especially the numbers, they're symbolic, aren't they? We've seen this all the way through the book, including the word thousand, of course, which actually, through the book, has been used not to speak of literal thousands, but metaphorical thousands, as as, frankly, most of the other numbers have as well. In other words, it's used to speak of many, or it's used to speak of numerous. It's it's symbolic, it's representative, it's metaphorical. And so, unless we've got a really good reason to see this thousand here in chapter 20 as a, a literal period... Well, it seems best to see this too as symbolizing a period of many years. Indeed, I think symbolizing the whole period between Christ's first and second comings. Because there are only two comings that Scripture speaks of. His coming once to save and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. So what happens during that, that time? Well, well. for a start, notice that Satan is bound, verse 1. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So during this period, Satan is bound. But in what sense is he bound? Because from what we've seen in Revelation so far, it certainly doesn't look as though he's been bound, does it? But rather, he's been kind of rampaging around the world, sort of persecuting the church. But notice that he's bound in a particular way. Okay, that he may not deceive the nations any longer, verse 3. In other words, he's bound in the sense that he has no power anymore to deceive the nations. And chapter 12 has made it clear, hasn't it, that Satan is a defeated enemy. The, the coming of Christ, his, his death and resurrection, has destroyed the works of the evil one, hasn't it? In, in fact, in the Gospels, Jesus himself talks about the work of the cross as binding Satan doesn't it? It's the same word that's used here. In other words, because of the cross and the resurrection, the nations are being saved, right? More and more people, not simply Jews now, but but those from across the nations, they're being saved through Jesus, and there's nothing that Satan can do about it, right? He's bound. He can't hinder the progress of the gospel during this, this present age, you see? And, and what happens to Christians in this present age? Well, in verses 4 to 6, we discover that they reign. Right? In, in verse 4, John sees thrones, doesn't he? Where these Christians who have died in, in, the, in this, this present age, some even being martyred for Christ, haven't, um, they've not sort of ceased to have a meaningful existence in, until Christ returns and, and, and they are bodily raised to be with him. No, even now, they live and reign with Christ. And of course, friends, that's true of us as well, isn't it? Paul Paul explains it in in Ephesians 2, doesn't he, and in Colossians uh, as well, that that as Christians, we are even now, in in a spiritual sense, raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Which is such an encouragement, isn't it? To know that whatever happens in this world, there's nothing that can harm us, spiritually speaking. We reign with Christ. At the end of the the thousand years, uh, we see that Satan is released from his prison, his bondage, verse 7. But he's doomed, isn't he? Because there's this battle again, look, in verses 7 to 10. And it's the same battle that we saw in chapter 16 and 17 and 19 where the forces of evil try and defeat the church. You'll notice this time John includes these symbolic characters, Gog and Magog, in verse 8. They're names from Israel's kind of ancient history. He's using them here to represent all those through history who have opposed God and his people. And notice again, though, John stresses, no sooner has the battle started than it's over, verse 9. And Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see? It's a hopeless cause. Satan doesn't stand a chance. Jesus comes back at the end of this symbolic thousand years and he destroys the devil and his armies with, with one blow. And so finally, verses 11 to 15 speak of Jesus' judgment. So, so everyone is now before the king of kings. The books are opened and everyone is judged. But if your name is in the book of life, verse 12, then you are spared the lake of fire you're spared God's judgment and we've been told already haven't we back in chapter 13 that this book belongs to the lamb who was slain and, and do you see the point the the way to be spared God's judgment is because someone else the lamb endured it for us as, as John puts it elsewhere it's the blood of Christ that purifies us from all sin in other words on the day of judgment friends it will be the cross that saves us and friends, instance there's a lot of details in in this chapter that christians have various takes on but when you strip all of that away there are two things here that are very clear aren't there firstly that jesus is coming back and secondly that judgment is going to happen and the question for us is, which destiny are we heading for? Which destiny are you heading for? And if you're not yet trusting Christ, I hope you'll have seen here, through, through all the, the, uh, the, the complex uh, symbology here, that the destiny of those who don't trust Christ, it is the lake of fire as you pay for your sin yourself. So, so my plea would be to trust Christ before it's too late. Because what will happen if you do is that your name too will be in the book of life. You see such that you will be reigning with him now and will reign with him forever. So friends, wherever we stand this morning on some of the details of this, let's not forget the clear warnings of these chapters. Jesus is coming back and he will be victorious. And so let's get ready for his coming and let's stay ready for it. So friend, which city are you a citizen of? Which feast will you attend? Which destiny are you heading for? Let's pray together, shall we? Uh, Father, before... um, now, uh, Before we get these next two chapters, 21 and 22, and see the, the glorious finale uh, of this book, we, we thank you that, um, that in your love, in your mercy, you give us one final warning about the total victory of Jesus and so the absolute inevitability of judgment to come. And uh, Father, we pray that we would not be complacent regarding your return. But but reflect on the crucial questions that these chapters raise for us. That we may all be those who long for his return. Because our longings are not elsewhere. But our longings are for Zion's city. Our longings are for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Our longings are for eternity with you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.